Good morning again. Uh, as you know, Pastor Matt has been going through and just started going through the book of Isaiah. And uh, in a sense, we're going to continue in that way, uh, in that Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at a New Testament passage that quotes from Isaiah. So we're looking at Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 44 through 49 to give us a little bit of context for the quote. But we learn an important thing from these kinds of passages. We learn that to understand what's happening in the New Testament, we need the Old Testament. We need to quote and learn from the Old Testament. And to understand what's happening in the New Testament, we need to understand the fulfillment that's happening from these Old Testament passages. So we're going to look here in the New Testament as Paul is speaking to these Antioch Jews and explaining to them how they have always been called to be God's people, the people established by his grace to be his light to the whole world. So let's take a look together at this text. Again, Acts 13, starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that you've preserved it for us, that many have gone before us that have helped us learn how we can understand the whole story of Scripture. And so I pray that you would give us that kind of understanding. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our ears to hear that we may be changed by your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I love this series, um, Band of Brothers. It takes a look at you, the U.S. involvement in World War II in, in Europe specifically. And there's 10 episodes, and each episode has its own plot line. But all take place in this grander plot line of, of U.S. World War II European involvement. Even each episode has its own main character. We look at different angles and, and lenses of this war as it progresses. You follow a medic, a first sergeant holding the, holding the team together, even some of the training beforehand. But it's all part of one bigger story of that war. Uh, if you take it out of context, if you look at just one snapshot, it would be easy to, to miss the big point. You can imagine reading a headline, U.S leads massive invasion of Europe, killing thousands of Europeans. In some senses, that is a true uh, headline, but without the context that Germans were the Europeans and it was in response to this aggressive action. Uh, this was a liberation on D-Day that happened. So you need the overall plot line to make sense of the individual chapters. And something's happening in our text like this. There is a new chapter coming. The, the Gentiles are now being brought into the kingdom, and the Jewish people are rejecting it. They had lost the overall plot line 
of the whole story of Scripture. They had forgotten these two things, who they were as God's people and what they were called to do. These, these are the two points I'm going to come back to. They had lost who they were and what they were called to do. And in some ways, the Bible uh, is like Band of Brothers in that there are different chapters, there's different episodes, there are different stories, but in the context of one big, broader story. There are 66 books in the Bible. There's over or around uh, uh, 1,200 chapters if you added them all up. But there's one story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, where God created all things good. The fall, where, where sin entered in, rebellion against God entered in, and curses to the world were brought. And redemption, where God is, is working to fix that fall, that sin. He's working to correct what was done wrong in the garden and consummation where he'll finally complete it. It's one big plot line to the story. And so we have to uh, look at our text here and see where it fits into this bigger story. Because there were different chapters with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with the, the prophets, different main characters. And their job was all to uh, both show the need for Jesus as they failed to be this savior for redemption, but also reveal a little bit of what Jesus was going to be as this ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And by the time we get to the book of Acts, this predicted Jesus has arrived on the scene. He has done all he had came to do. He took the sin of, and brokenness of the world on his shoulders onto himself. He was punished. He died for those sins. He was raised to new life, and he's declaring to his disciples and explaining to them there is now going to be a death to death. Death was a penalty for sin that is now going to be re removed. There is a resurrection to new life. I will be creating a new heavens and new earth, he says, a place where we can now live and restored from sin, free from sin and brokenness. A, a, a page has turned. A new chapter has come in. Jesus has come, and now the word is being spread out to the nations. And this was disruptive in some senses that this big thing had happened in the storyline. This big chapter change had happened. And so the Jewish people in Antioch were reacting to that. Paul and Barnabas are the ones taking this message. So Paul and Barnabas, they're on this missionary trip. There's a couple of them they take in the book of Acts. Uh, this one they left from Antioch to go to Antioch. That's a little confusing. Uh, there is a, a large city named Antioch in northern Syria, and they had traveled to Antioch, it says in our text, in Pisidia, which was in Turkey. So there was a smaller Antioch in Turkey that they went to. And we also learned from the text, if you look at the first couple words, it was the next Sabbath. So this was the second time they were preaching to this smaller Antioch. Now, this smaller Antioch in Turkey, Turkey is, you know, quite a bit of ways in the ancient world from Israel, so it was a mostly Gentile city, meaning non-Jewish city. Uh, there was a small portion of Jewish people living there, a, a dispersion of Jewish people living in a Gentile city. And clearly, in between the two Sabbaths, there was a lot of evangelism going on with Paul and Barnabas. They had gone originally to the synagogue. They had told the Antioch Jews this message of Jesus they had spent the whole week sharing this message, and on the second Sunday, a huge turnout from the city. All these Gentiles, it says the whole city, maybe a bit of exaggeration from Luke, but a lot of people came to hear this message. 
And the Antioch Jewish people were upset. They were, they were in, a, in some ways stuck in an old chapter. They had confused the plot line of the chapter they were in as the nation of Israel with the whole plot line. And in some ways, I have sympathy. The, the chapter of the Jewish people, the Israelite nation, was a long chapter in the Bible. So it would be easy to forget that there is more going on to the story of salvation than just the Israelite nation. A, a, a page is turning, and this is a good thing. It means progress was being made in God's redemptive plan for the whole world that fell into sin. But here they are, non-Jews coming to the synagogue. A different message is being preached that they had learned the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had rejected, and, and they're upset. If you look at verse 45, you see some of the reaction here. They're jealous of everyone who came. They contradict what Paul and Barnabas are saying, even though we learn it is the word of God. They even go so far as to revile him or slander him. You could translate that blaspheme, Paul and Barnabas. They were very angry. They were not happy about this, and so why? Why are they so upset? I think a number of reasons. Um, one would be just kind of exclusivity of of them having this group, this, this racial religious group of Jews, again, in a very non-Jewish city, this was a safe place for them. This was a place where they could go. They could worship God. They weren't, they weren't outsiders or outcasts. They were Jewish people here at the synagogue, and that was being disrupted. A, a demographic change was taking place. It'd be equivalent to maybe us beginning to reach homeless people or drug dealers. The, the, the shift in demographics is happening. And this is why circumcision was actually such a big deal in the early church. There was this pressure as people came to the Lord to become more Jewish-like, to get circumcised, to become Jewish in order to come to God, to assimilate into Jewish culture. And uh, we can be guilty of this too. In England, it's a particular problem where most Christians are in the upper class of England, where the you know, class divisions are, not sure what fell <laughs> Class divisions are, are much bigger of a deal um, there in England. And so as people of different socioeconomic backgrounds come in, there's a little pressure to sound a little more posh, to dress maybe a little differently. There's some dress codes in church they weren't aware of, and there's some pressure to, uh, to assimilate culturally in. And we, I think we can be guilty of some of the same. So it was making them uncomfortable. Um, and it was disrupting their normal worship. This small group of Jews in the city probably had their normal places to sit in the sanctuary, and now the whole city comes out. Imagine how small the synagogue must have been and what it would have been like for this whole city to come in and begin to worship. It would be, again, equivalent to maybe us showing up and having to sit in one of the overflow rooms and watch the worship service from the TV. You come all this way out here, and then you're, you're, you're forced to sit out and watch from the TV. Or, or maybe it's a feeling like, uh, this used to feel like a family where we knew everyone, but now there's so many more people coming in. This is disrupting my worship with God. They're, they're feeling disrupted. So what do they do with this disruptive feeling? Well, they, they go on the offensive. <laughs> they attack, they slander, they contradict. They argue with Paul and Barnabas, who again we learn are bringing the word of God, the words of the Old Testament. They're bringing the words from Jesus himself, why is there such opposition that they would go so far as to contradict and argue Paul? Well, I would say that there was actually some deep theological errors 
They weren't receiving the message Paul was bringing because they were caught up in some theological error as Jewish people, where again, they had missed the bigger plot line of the story. They were law followers, people known for having God's law, who were the ones living out God's law, which was good. God's law is good. It is a good guide. His rules for us are good guides for our life. But they were using it to be more right than others. Another word for being more right is being righteous. They were feeling righteous for their law following. But the law was never meant to separate us from the world. The law was given to the world from God to show us our sin, our need for a savior, and to guide us in how to live free from idolatry. Those things shouldn't separate us from the world. That is a good message for the world. They had missed the purpose of the law, and Jesus had to deal with this when he comes to the Jewish nation, when he's preaching around Jerusalem and Judea. He's having to address this. He, he even has to anticipate their objections and say, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He goes on to show that they didn't fully understand their law following because you could never perfectly follow it. Even lusting with your eyes was adultery. So he explains to them the purpose of the law was to show them their sin, show them their need for a savior, and after that, to guide them in a, in a fulfilling, flourishing life free from idolatry. If they had understood that, they would be excited to see other people get that message. But instead, they were losing identity. They were losing some self-righteousness. To admit these Gentiles could just freely come in like this was upsetting. It, it, preaching grace can sound like you are the same as that drug dealer or sinner because it does mean that. We come before God as sinners, nothing to offer on our own. Grace is this, this great equalizer among us. So to equalize them was upsetting, and so they argue against it. They confront against it. The New Testament spends all this time trying to correct this theological error. So we see all through the uh, different letters Paul and Peter write um, just some examples in Galatians 3. Paul is saying, was it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, your, your forefather in the faith, believed God, and that belief, it was counted to him as righteousness. In Romans 4, this is repeated uh, from a different angle. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, meaning following the law, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say, though? Abraham believed God, had faith in God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. And the rest of Romans 4 goes on to say a couple verses later, um, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that, they, that he would have heirs, that they would be his heir, did not come from the law, but through righteousness of faith. It depends, therefore, then, on grace through faith. That is who are the heirs, who are sons of Abraham, those who respond in faith, not those who are our genetic descendants, as the Jewish people were thinking, not those who come to the Lord by works of the law or are justified by works, but those who come and respond in faith. 
And that was happening before their very eyes. These Gentiles who were not followers of the law were not coming based on justification by their works, by their following of the law. They were hearing and having faith that God had made a provision. They were becoming God's people because of his grace. He chose them not out of what they did, but because of their faith. It was unearned, unmerited. It was a gift from God. They had forgotten who they were. They were people who heard by faith, who became his people because of grace. They forgot who they were. Now, in each chapter of the story of the Bible, each big you know, sub-story within the grand narrative, God has always had his people, and his people have always been his people by faith. Hebrews 11 kind of charts this out for us. Just a couple excerpts from this whole chapter. By faith, Abel offered to God. By faith, Noah constructed the ark. By faith, Abraham went to the promised land. By faith, Moses left Egypt. Now think about the names, Abel, Noah, Abraham. These are all not Israel yet. Remember, it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob renamed Israel and his 12 sons that become the tribe of Israel but they don't become a nation until leaving Egypt and covenanting with God in the desert under Moses when they are the nation of Israel. And even then, they don't look like a nation in the way we think of it until under David and Solomon where they have socioeconomic borders and they are uh, under the, the rulership of a king. So Israel was a chapter, but God has always had his people and his, his people has, have always come with faith. Again, they were stuck in their chapter, forgetting God's people are those who hear and respond by faith. And it was always part of God's plan to slowly expand who his people were. Right? It starts as just these faithful descendants of Seth, and then it grows into a whole tribe that is faithful under Abraham, to a whole nation of Israel that are his people, to all of those who are his across the whole world. He's slowly expanding who his people are. That's part of the story. And there have always been ways, even there's some continuity in the story too, in that there have always been ways for the nations to come in to be the people of God. We were in the book of Ruth not too long ago. If you remember Naomi, she was not Jewish, but she responded in faith. And she moves back to Israel and she is grafted in to become the people of God. There have been ways in each chapter too that the nations could come in to be the people of God. Grafting is kind of a cool imagery uh, to picture how the people of God have looked through the whole year. Grafting is this uh, thing you can do to trees, to plants, where uh, you know if you cut off a branch from one tree and cut off a part of a, a tree, they will heal together and become part of the same plant. Kind of like if you, know, you could, well, I guess you could do this. If, if you lost a finger and the doctor sews it back on, it heals back on, but people can experiment in, in agriculture and do this. In fact, there is a guy who has an apple tree in England with, that grows 250 different kinds of apples. He's collected a branch every time he finds a new apple tree, takes it home, cuts a little notch in his tree, and grafts in the new apple tree. And so this, this tree exists with all different kinds of apples grafted in So new branches have always been coming in to be the people of God, and dead, dying branches have been cut off. You hear that over and over in Scripture in all the different 
chapters of the story. So it's the same in the sense that people have been grafted in, old branches are cut off, but it's different. And in this new chapter, a significant number of Gentiles are coming into the tree, and a significant number of Jewish branches are rejecting, are dying off, and are being removed. It's the same tree, some continuity, but some difference to what's going on in this new chapter. Uh, So, again, failure for them to understand who they are leads to failure to do the right thing. That's the second thing, too. They had forgotten who they were, and we're going to learn that that had deeply affected what they were to do as a result of that. Uh, McDonald's forgot who they were, and it messed up their mission of what they were trying to do when they tried to create a line of deluxe gourmet hamburgers. Who they are is providing fast, inexpensive food that can fill up a family of four for a couple bucks and you can get it in two minutes. When you decide to invent a line of gourmet foods, you, you forgot who you were and it messed up what you were doing. This is happening to Israel a little bit. They were a people formed by God's grace, but they were formed to do something, to be a light to the nations. This uh, quote comes from Isaiah 49 that we see in the text here. They were called to be a light to the nations, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, it says in verse 47. Isaiah 49, there's some context here. Um, We're learning a little bit about the context as we go through the book, but it's all about judgment coming to Israel. Isaiah was a couple hundred years before the book of Acts. Judgment was coming to Israel because they had failed to do this, even 400 years before, to be a light to the nations. But we're also learning in the book of Isaiah, God promises a provision for that failure would come. Salvation from that judgment would come. But what's even more shocking, even in Isaiah, was it says that Israel will be restored, a provision will be made for Israel, but through that provision, through renewing you as a nation, you will be a light to the nations. You will bring salvation to the end of the earth. The verse even says, it is not enough for us just to restore Israel, but this has always meant to go to the nations. Israel had failed, but we learn from this verse, a servant would do what they failed to do. It's again interesting. We're looking at context of Isaiah now. In Isaiah, this is one of the servant songs. There's four of them. This is the second one that keep talking about this servant, a servant that's going to come and fix what Israel messed up, who would act on behalf of Israel, was kind of uh, uh, expressing headship, representation of Israel. He would be what Israel was supposed to be. He would make a provision for Israel's failure. He would restore Israel, and when he restored them, he would restore them back on their mission to be light to the nations, this single figure. And we learn in the New Testament who this figure was. Uh, When baby Jesus shows up to the temple in Luke 2, maybe you remember this from two and a half years ago, Simeon, who's there at the temple, sees him and rejoices and said, behold, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He says that about Jesus. And as Jesus grows up and matures in John 8, he says, I am light to the world. He knows he is the fulfillment of that servant. And it's even confirmed by Peter in Acts 3. He says Jesus was this servant of God that was predicted. Again, to make provision for the failure to establish his people by grace, 
and to send them back on mission. He had a twofold restoration. God's people restored by grace. That's what happened in the gospel when, as I described, he had taken the sins of the world on him. He made a provision for our sin. So his people are established by grace. They remember who they are and they're sent out onto mission. So Israel forgot both of those things. They forgot who they were and they forgot what they were made to do, to be a mission, to be light. There is one, another piece of continuity. Just as we looked at all through scripture, there's continuity between who God's people were there's continuity between what God's people were supposed to do, using different you know, words and verbiage each time in each chapter, but it was always the same, to go to the nations. Abraham, it said he was blessed to be a blessing. He received favor, restoration of the curse from God so that he could be in the world being a blessing to others. He was called the father of all nations. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Jesus becomes God's servant, brings salvation to the world. And now we, as Jesus's body, that's another name for the church, have his mission to reveal both God's restoration and declare his salvation to the world. So this has obvious implications for us. We should be his people by grace, grace at the center of who we are as light to the world to an even greater extent because Israel understood grace, they had faith, but now as it's fully revealed in Christ, we really get it. As our confession said, it took him dying on the cross to bring us to him. We should really understand grace to a deeper extent. And even the, the going to the nations in light part is more of an emphasis because it used to be Israel drawing people in and now we are to go to the nations to declare it. So to an even greater extent, a community of grace as light to the nations. So how do we be light? Well, what is light? You see light. Light is something you see. The people of Israel, people were supposed to see they were different. They were restored, that God was giving them blessing. They were supposed to see that to others. And they were to declare it in words to why they were different. I could declare I am the best trumpet player ever, but then to play a few notes would reveal that's not true. <laughs> we need to be able, if we're going to declare the good news, people have the right to ask, okay, where is it? If we're gonna declare there's this restored community, restored from sin, people can ask, let me see it then. Where do I see this living community demonstrating his power at work? We need to both show it and declare it. The split between Word and deeds is something that has disrupted the American church in the last hundred years and other countries look at us and go, what are you guys doing? It is not just deeds and it's not just words. It's not just deeds like many of the liberal churches have done to, to um, not declare the fullness of the gospel in words to others. That needs to go along with their good deeds. And we are saying and declaring good things as an Orthodox church, but we need to be doing those things as well. We need to be light, we need to be blessed, we need to be distinct from the world, living free from idolatry, indeed, and declaring that's because of God in word. Just as Paul and Barnabas are being light and declaring it to the Gentiles by word in this passage. So we need to do those things, be God's community by grace, 
and be living as light to the nations. And we need to do all this, point three, while we rest in God's sovereignty. Sovereignty that he's in charge, sovereign that he will, sovereign in the way that he will accomplish his mission. It will not be slowed. It will not be frustrated. He will save whom he wants to save, and he will save them regardless of who is faithful to their call to be light. The Jewish people were called to be light to these Antioch Jewish people, and in their unfaithfulness, God steps around them and sends Paul and Barnabas to declare the word to them. He is sovereign over reaching his people. You even see it in verse 48. There's this verse of election right in the middle of the passage. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were appointed, elected by God were saved. Emphasizing God was sovereign in this. The word of God is brought. We see this emphasized four times in this short little passage. It says word of God, word of the Lord. That's a trick when you're trying to exegete a sermon to preach. When you see repetition like this, you should pay attention to it. So Paul and Barnabas are preaching the word of God, but you get these two, even though they're doing it correctly, you get these two distinct reactions, rejection and embracing. And they're not worried about the reaction. They're being faithful to what God had called them to do. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to places like Turkey, And that's why it says they were bold in the way that they spoke. But you still see these two reactions. The ones who reject Paul's message are the ones who forgot they were God's people by grace. The ones who embrace it needed to hear a message of God's grace for them, sinners. The ones who reject his message were the ones who failed to be light in that community. The ones who embrace it become light. You see in verse 49, these Gentiles who came to believe, they take it to the regions. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. They received his grace and became his light. Sovereignty should be both a comfort and a warning to us. A comfort that we only have to be faithful to our part to declare the good news of salvation, to live as light in the world. We cannot force the response. We can give that to the Lord. It's a comfort to us. But it's also a warning to those who miss being the people of grace, who miss being on mission to be light to God's people and the nations. God steps around them and keeps going. Denominations rise and fall, churches rise and fall, but God's mission continues. There are not too many thousand-year-old denominations. There are not too many thousand-year-old churches that still have faithful congregations, but that's okay. God's mission continues. He still grows the church despite that. So let's not be stepped around by God. Let's be his people by his grace who know his gospel. And let's be on missions, light to the nations, declaring the gospel to others, all while trusting in his sovereignty. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the chance to respond to you, to worship you this morning, to uh, sing it, to be an encouragement to one another, to receive your word. We thank you that you are still with us and you are still at work in the world. Help us rest in that. We pray in Christ's name, amen.